Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Lauren. Mike. Lauren, what is your favorite Elon Musk company? Like, which one of his many companies are you most fascinated by? Define favorite. <laughs> the one you're most fascinated by. The one... is, that, is that really what favorite means? I think favorite has inherently a favorable connotation. And I'm not sure that I would think of any of Elon Musk's companies as that being in that realm. Not even Twitter? Uh, well, I mean, I used to have a lot of affection for Twitter, but that was pre-Elon pre Musk. I can tell you what my least favorite is. Which one? Which is Neuralink. Okay. Because the brain what, are those, computer what are those interface. poor pigs and sheeps and monkeys ever do to Elon Musk could deserve that. Right. Okay. I, I, if I had to say, I'd guess I would say Tesla. Um, what is your favorite Elon Musk company? What is your quote unquote favorite Elon Musk company? I would say it's Twitter. Uh, okay. Mostly because I think it's the one that still has the clearest potential for good. Interesting. Really? Yes. Not even Tesla. Not even revolutionizing the electric vehicle and maybe making our transportation more sustainable. That is noble, and we absolutely should do that. But I think if we're really going to solve the climate crisis, we need to stop relying on cars entirely. Hmm, right. And, and batteries have come with their own set of problems. They too. do, yes. Right. Hmm. Okay. So is that it? Is that our show? Yes. Oh, no, wait. You know what? <laughs> what? There's another company now that we can add to the list. What? Yes. Another Elon Musk company. Let's talk about it. Just what we needed. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. We are joined this week once again by Wired Editor-at-Large, Stephen Levy. Hello, Stephen. Hi, folks. Great to be back on the podcast. It's great to have you. 
It's great. It's really great to have you, Stephen. I always think of editor at large as editor in jammies, but as far as I can see on the Zoom, you are not in jammies. I'm I'm, I'm at large, you know, with, <laughs> pursued, pursued by authorities somewhere. <laughs> All right. As we mentioned, Elon Musk is back in the news again. Really, does he ever leave the news? Nope. Late last week, Musk announced a new artificial intelligence venture called XAI. That's three letters, XAI, and the X is lowercase. It's a weird time for Elon to launch a new company. He still runs Tesla, SpaceX, Neuralink, and Twitter. Twitter in particular is causing him headaches. Its business is sagging, and just a couple of weeks ago, Meta launched Threads, which is basically a Twitter copycat, and which very quickly eclipsed Twitter's popularity among the Digirati. Of course, all of this is happening in the shadow of what feels like a lazy subplot on a bad sitcom, (laughs) a mixed martial arts cage match between Musk and his rival Mark Zuckerberg has been proposed and will probably end up happening. We'll talk about the possible Musk-Zuck beef cage match in the second half of the show. But first, (laughs) we need to talk about this latest development of XAI. Stephen, I'm sure you saw that XAI launched with the stated goal on its website of understanding the true nature of the universe. And that's a quote. What do you make of this claim? What truths could Elon be seeking? Well, I I listened to about an hour and a half um, Twitter spaces you know, with Elon and the team. Um, and apparently part of what it means is that if we discover the secrets of the universe and they turn out to be politically incorrect, XAI will report them anyway. Whereas he implied that if OpenAI or some other company had uncovered a secret of the universe that somehow, um, you know, was unfavorable to liberals, uh, they would censor it. That seemed to be sort of the sense of it, but you know, seriously, um, it is something that is talked about quite a lot among the adherents of AI and particularly AGI, this generalized intelligence that will ramp up the super intelligence, that this is our best shot at solving the problems that humanity uh, hasn't been able to solve to date. The really intractable stuff like climate change and understanding what life is all about, what the secrets of the universe are, what the scientific mysteries are, uh, how the brain works, all this stuff that we aren't able to crack. And they say they're specifically going to do this. They haven't really explained what sort of large language models or other things that they will do to make XAI uniquely able to crack these secrets, but this is their mission. I have so many questions about this. All right, to start, you mentioned in your story about this, Stephen, that XAI's homepage is very spare. It doesn't offer much information, but it does show a team of 11 AI researchers. They're seemingly all men. Uh, Okay, that's the first thing. I don't know if that's a question, just a (laughs) remark. Um, That speaks for itself, Lauren. Okay. They have uh, all done significant work at places like Google, DeepMind, and OpenAI. Um, They've, you know, worked on some incredible research papers. So we should take this company seriously. But also, it is just 11 people who are listed thus far. And presumably, companies like Google and DeepMind and OpenAI have much bigger teams working on this. What do you make of all of that? Well, OpenAI started pretty small, if you think about it. 
So, you know, they have nowhere near the researchers that Google or Microsoft or Meta had in artificial intelligence. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're not capable of building something really superb. As you mentioned, hmm. some of them are, are heavyweights, including one who came from the, like the elite of AI with to be the, one of the students of Jeff Hinton, uh, who was known as the godfather of AI. He's the godfather of this iteration of AI called deep learning. And his students really are the cream of the crop and the ones that have spread out uh, into sort of a Toronto diaspora to bring cutting edge AI to many companies. Um, the question I wanted to ask, I, I, I didn't listen to the Twitter spaces live, so I, uh, not that they would have called on me, but uh, <laughs> the, from the open AI, so I wanted to ask the people who left open AI, why did you leave open AI? You know, which fancies itself as a cutting edge company with a mission to bring AGI to the world in, in a way that benefits humanity. Uh, what, what was not doing for you that you would have to go to join your 11 male colleagues at XAI. Uh, that's interesting to me. And sort of what they're really gonna to do to distinguish it uh, isn't clear. And, and I was joking up top about talking about the politically correct thing, but that was something that uh, Elon hit pretty hard, uh, implying that he's not gonna shy away from truth just because it's unpopular. And he was throwing shade at these other companies, though I really don't think that the guardrails they're putting on some of these big companies are putting on the answers from their chatbots come from political incorrectness. But you know they're looking over their shoulders at regulators uh, to make sure that they don't seize on mistakes and serious mistakes that come from their chatbots. And you know, so they want to prove that they could build these things safely. Um, it's not really a contest to uh, be politically correct, but that's what Elon believes. How much of the launch of XAI do you think is motivated by FOMO, uh, particularly over ChatGPT and Elon's leaving of the company that made ChatGPT several years ago? Yeah, I mean, Elon was a co-founder of OpenAI. I, interviewed both him and Sam Altman when the thing launched and in 2018 he left um, and has been sniping at them uh, a little ever since there's been some mutual sniping so the past few months we've been getting reports that Elon was doing this recruiting for his own AI generative AI company which is a little ironic because at the same time he's signing petitions saying that we've got to stop all AI activity for six months um, so <laughs> But he's he's going to go full bore during the, the conversation. He thought uh, that it really wouldn't be useful to stop development for a few months. It wouldn't make much of a difference in the long run. I think he's right there. So uh, I think that, yeah, he's always been interested in AI. Uh, Tesla and even SpaceX have AI divisions or um, it's part of their engineering team. Um, he even mentioned that it's a great recruiting tool for an engineer to say, well, not only can you develop AI, but you get to work on electric cars and rockets uh, at the same time. And that apparently, uh, he said, is a deal 
clincher for a lot of engineers. And now he could say, well, you could work on solving the mysteries of the universe as well as electric cars and rockets. So that's the Holy Trinity, right? Hmm. Stephen, back in March, Musk was part of a group of people who signed a letter calling for a pause on generative AI development. Whatever came of that so-called pause? Well, the pause was never going to happen. You weren't going to get Google and OpenAI and other companies in competition with each other to say, we're going to stop for six months. Uh, to the contrary, once ChatGPT came out, it was super popular, and then Microsoft started integrating OpenAI into its search engine and now other products, uh, the other companies felt they had to go full bore to compete with them. And, and Elon is very frank uh, in saying that XAI is a competitor to these companies. It's not a research operation. They're going to build their own LLM and release it. Um, and it's you're going to decide whether you like that better than the GPTs or um, Google's Bard. You know, you, you get to choose. Or Facebook's Llama. That's right. Yeah, the mm -hmm. Llama came out. And now the Llama is partnering with Microsoft, which I think maybe OpenAI might not be pleased about because <laughs> uh, now Microsoft is sort of hedging its bets on OpenAI by embracing Llama. But for Microsoft, it makes perfect sense because they want to keep their processors, their servers churning uh, with these computation heavy large language models. So it's great for them because it brings business into their data centers. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I like to think of if you could take a person who was using tech 20 years ago and port them into the future and just have them listen to a conversation where we're like, yeah, I'm not quite sure about this XAI thing because it really depends on how Meta's llama does. And also, you know, have you tried the new GPT plus four level grade based on this LLM that's, you know, but and then Google, the person would be like, I know Google. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these things that you're talking about are all developments in the last year. Right. And well, so over several years, but being commercialized or brought to light over the past year. Yeah. And like the terminology is something that we're only familiar with now because now it's part of our everyday lives. Right. Whereas before it was sort of behind the curtain. I'm really curious about what happens a year or two from now. Like we're still in the chatbot era, but companies keep talking about what happens after chatbots, what happens after large language models and after you know the text-based gen ai matures like where do we go next yeah well in 10 years we won't have to worry about this because all the conversation will be taking place <laughs> among ai you know uh, machines and we'll just be sitting at home popping edibles <laughs> perfect <laughs> I thought you were going to say psilocybin, but sure, edibles work. <laughs> well, it, yeah, edibles could be anything. That's true. Yeah, I'm, I'm giving away my uh, boomer credentials here. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, let's take a break and we'll be right back with more. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. 
Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Stephen, you have the enviable job of keeping up with the goings-on of all these billionaires in Silicon Valley. As we mentioned earlier, Elon Musk challenged Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg to a cage match last month. Wait, wait, just just take a moment. Yes. We're talking about this transformative technology. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, we're like, yeah, these two dudes, these bros, they want to have a fight. They do. And, And like... It's legitimate enough at this point that we're talking about it on our Wired podcast. Yes, we all thought it was a joke when it was yeah. announced. Yes. But now it like actually seems to be happening. They're talking to the big production company that does all the mixed martial arts pay-per-view shows. They're talking to venues in Las Vegas about hosting it. Uh, both of the participants appear willing to want to go forward with it, and they're talking about how they're training. Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg's been working out. I mean, he's been working out for years. But just, you know, it's still it's just strange. Everything about it is is strange. But they saw the headlines about how Taylor Swift was driving local economies with her concerts. And they thought, you know what? We want to get in on that, too. Oh, I would love to know the motive. Oh, hold my energy drink. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Stephen, in your plain text newsletter last week, you wrote an open letter to Mark Zuckerberg pleading him to not step into the ring with Elon Musk and to not engage with him in hand-to-hand physical combat. Did you ever think that you'd be passing along advice like that in a consumer tech newsletter? Uh, No, I didn't. But uh, (laughs) this is, you know, the world we live in where, you know, insane scenarios are actually happening. We've talked, just talked about these uh, chatbots, which were really the realm of science fiction, where you know people are very seriously talking now about you know uh, the kind of companions we saw in the movie Her as a reality that is like slam dunk within our grasp right now. Um, that uh, you know Black Mirror is the mirror now, right? Is our mirror. Uh, so uh, this is. Just the you know another implausible episode of Black Mirror, which has come to life. Uh, in this case, <laughs> you know, this battle. I mean, I'm not still a hundred percent convinced that it's not a goof. But every time you try to poke it to see, okay, where's the the joke? It's not happening, right? So you'll see, you know, the the head of the you know um, MMA organization, mixed martial arts organization. You know, they're talking about how to sanction the battle. And, you know, I wrote to uh, Meta and I said, hey, tell me, is this serious? I actually wrote to Mark. I, you know, DM, I sent a message to Mark saying, hey, tell me if this is really happening. He didn't respond. Um, and <laughs> sometimes he does. And uh, then I talked to his PR person, which said, I'm not going to comment on this. Uh, but then you see, you know, because Lauren referred to, they posted this picture of him training 
with some, you know, MMA guys who are apparently famous in this. Uh, and so they're talking like it really might happen. I'm still a little wary, but I think this is corrosive stuff here. I mean, these people are middle-aged billionaires who, like it or not, are leaders in these important technologies. So we're now saying, putting our trust really into the technologies that these people are building. And as it turns out, they're acting like, you know, like a pair of nine-year-olds uh, out there saying they're gonna like settle their battles, you know, by combat. And then Mark Andreessen, let's bring up oh, this guy. Okay, I'm so glad you brought this up because <laughs> I was going to ask you what you made of this essay. I mean, it read like an onion headline, like man who made billions off people staring at their computer screens all day long and using browsers now tells the kids to go out and fight. Yeah, these people, he's saying, you know, it's a tough world out there. You know, people have got to learn to fight. You know, I've actually traveled with some billionaires, right? They travel with big security contingents, right? No one's going to come up to them and put them in a chokehold. They're like, they wouldn't even get within 20 feet of them. You know, again, these people are, are saying how great it is that uh, you should train your kids in combat because it's primal. It's part of, you know, being like a, like a man or presumably, you know, they don't talk about their daughters, but I guess they want them to be you know, battle fighters too. I don't know. But... To me, well, I think he makes the argument that it's good for self-defense. Well, you know, when you get into a ring with someone, you know, uh, you're really talking about a, a very avoidable situation that <laughs> that you don't have to go into to, to defend yourself, right? You know, I don't, I don't have to worry about defending myself against a mixed martial arts fighter in a ring because I'm not going to go in a ring. For, and these people are saying, you know, it, they have no love loss for each other, and they don't respect each other and elon musk even did a tweet you know suggesting they pull out a ruler and compare each other's you know what um that's not the kind of behavior that i believe we want our thought leaders to emulate and it's particularly nasty because bringing it back to ai that both zuckerberg and musk are people who are building these large language models. They're trained with assumptions. So just think about it. The people who are programming these models, training these models, uh, both believe that it's like a reasonable and desirable thing to do to settle your disputes with fighting. And maybe that stuff is going to bleed into the answers that their large language models give. You know, those are their assumptions on the way the world is. And as we've learned, assumptions that people have lead in to the training sets and the results you get from the queries you give to large language models. So I think actually there's sort of a subtle um, problem with this that goes beyond the idea that it's something out of idiocracy. Let's assume for a second that we're not all being trolled. <laughs> that this physical a real, a real might actually happen. A real it's a real possibility. How is this fight between Elon and Mark symbolic of the battle they're waging over their platforms right now? Well, it, you know, because it's it's very tough business competition, uh, and that's that's our system. And you could say that the system is great because it, you know, uh, they talk all the time about how competition leads them to build better products. 
but it also leads people, as we've seen in this very example, uh, to sometimes release products uh, before they're fully baked. So Microsoft released its search engine powered by a uh, large language model um, before it was ready to go out into the world without trying to steal the wives or you know steal journalists actually from out under their wives. You know, it, uh, and you know, I'm referring to this conversation with Sydney, the uh, Microsoft uh, Bing chatbot had with the journalist Kevin Roos, which exposed a pretty big flaw in that the iteration that, that they shipped with their large language model. So Musk and Zuckerberg have said that they would donate the pay-per-view revenue to charity. Uh, does that make it any easier for you to swallow if they actually go through with this? No, that's like pennies compared to what they could give to charity. Right? <laughs> These people are worth each over $100 billion. Musk is worth over $200 billion, right? You know, they could like just flip $5 billion to some charity and they, they'd never miss it ever, right? Yeah. So what are they going to give? A couple, few million, 10 million to charity? And, and that's going to excuse behavior, which is going to stand for a symbol of our corrosive times for all eternity? I don't think so. <laughs> it is it is all very grim. How much of this is a distraction from the threat of regulation? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that it's not going to stop that. And, you know, uh, it, it'll draw attention, but uh, people haven't stopped writing about regulation. And, you know, uh, you know, Lena Khan still managed to come out with some sort of uh, criticisms of what's going on in the AI space. Um, she wasn't distracted by it. And she's not going to get in the ring with them. <laughs> right. But I mean, these guys are professional attention merchants, to steal a phrase from Tim Wu. Right. This is what they do. They know how to traffic and attention. They know how to get people's attention. And this is like a it's a head fake in, in, in a way. Um, it's a good fighting term. Head fake. Yeah, it really is. It's also a good basketball term. <laughs> but, you know, I suppose that's a pump fake. But yeah, and it has attention is a limited resource of ours. We do have a limited amount of it. And wait, there wait, is Lauren, a Lauren, lot. Are, you, are you an MMA fan? I'm not, actually. I don't think I've ever watched a single match. Although a friend of mine did say the other evening over dinner that if this cage match came to be, that she would she would get it on pay-per-view. And I said, yes, and I would. I would. I'd be there. I'd come over. Oh, we and would, I, I would absolutely watch it. Actually, in an ideal it. world, Stephen, you and I would go cover it right. um, yeah, in yeah. person. I hope I could expense. Yeah, but um, because I just want to be there to soak in the absurdity and to feel the vibes and to write about it for Wired. I think that there would be nothing better. Um, but it does feel that that's what it is. It is a peak level of absurdity. And we are talking about it right now. We're devoting attention to it right now. While there's this flurry of activity in Washington, we have like Senator Schumer calling for a series of, you know, AI talks and panels to so that our legislators can get up to speed on how this technology works. And like we are at this pivotal moment where we need to start seriously thinking about how this is going to affect our humanity and, and you know more than it has already and and here we are we're talking about a, a vegas cage match between these these two bros by the way my money's on zuck but yes <laughs> um you just imagine if you're someone who's working in uh ai in china and you're watching this happen mm -hmm. you're thinking these are the people that i'm competing against yes it is all yes, very indeed. absurd yep well, I don't want to think about this anymore. So let's take a break and we'll come back and do our recommendations. 
Hackers and cyber criminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. Click here, every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we desperately need to switch gears now, so let's do our recommendations. Stephen, as our guest, you get to go first. What is the thing that you want to recommend to our listeners? Well, I just saw the movie Oppenheimer, uh, which, you know, we had in Wired, we had a big interview with Chris Nolan, the director, um, and it's fantastic. It's really one of the best movies I've seen in years. It's a complicated movie. It's Christopher Nolan, of course, mm-hmm. uh, and he jumps around in time and space, um, you know, not in a science fiction way, but in a narrative sense, but you never lose the thread. And it's uh, an important story about the guy who developed the atom bomb for the U.S. and then had to defend himself um, in the Red Scare uh, later on, and it turned out to be a very nuanced, um, you know, uh, prosecution against him. But it had a lot of issues that uh, relate to AI. Like, um, do you go on with technology along with the technology that has any chance at all, a non-zero chance, let's say, of wiping out humanity? Uh, so it has resonance there. Um, and great acting performances. Um, I highly recommend it. Did you see it in IMAX? No, I didn't because uh, there were two screening theaters and they split us up and I got the non-IMAX one. But um, okay. I, th- th- this is not a complaint that I'm going to make. I've got sure. in my life and not making it into the IMAX theater. Sure. We both saw it last night. Lauren we did. And I both yeah. saw it last night also. We saw it here in San Francisco at the AMC Metreon 16, which I later found out is apparently Christopher Nolan's favorite IMAX screen. Among his favorites. Among his favorites. Yes. And we did see it on IMAX. And um, yeah, they all have, all those actors have lovely pores. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to know who their facialists are. <laughs> um, did you Did you like the movie, Lauren? So that is my recommendation this week as well. I'm just hopping aboard the Stephen Levy train here. Um, Stephen, if you get invited to Vegas, I'd like to tag along. Also, your recommendation is Oppenheimer, and so is mine. I felt intrigued by the movie. I felt rattled by it. Uh, I want to see it again. (laughs) I want to see it again with uh, captioning on because (laughs) I watch a lot of things using captions now when I'm watching stuff at home. And it really helps me process dialogue in a different way. And uh, the movie was incredibly fast moving. And there was a lot of like dialogue, this like really heightened dramatic dialogue packed into plot driving scenes. And so I was like, I would like to see this. Yeah, just want to see it again and experience it again. I thought the acting was terrific. I thought the special effects were incredible. Um, Yeah, you have to you have to like Christopher Nolan movies, I think. And, and so I, there were elements of it I did not love. Uh, won't Probably won't go into like my favorite movies of all time, you know, Apple Notes list. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but it was very good. It was very, very good. Really okay. moving. Lauren, there was a story recently that talked about how captions, people watching 
you know, the video with captions is like now a thing. Do you think one day we're all going to be wearing the AR glasses we have that will have captions on everything that we hear, the people, what people say? I could see that being useful in a movie like setting where you go to a theater and you don't have the option. And it's certainly great for accessibility reasons. Uh, But uh, no, I think most of us are just going to continue to experience captions on our personal devices, on our phones and on our TV screens at home because we can just put them on really easily. I think that'll be the most prominent way that we use it. Yeah, and I think it has to do with um, it's a combination of factors. It's it's that it depends on how a work is mixed, certainly how the audio is mixed. And if it's if you can actually hear those channels amongst like all the big the bombs and explosions and the car crashes and everything else and dramatic music and the violins uh but it, i think uh, we're probably all destroying our hearing yeah. <laughs> frankly with earbuds in our ears too and our generation is getting older and um yeah i don't know oh it's every just, generation is getting older it turns out all the time turns out we just get older <laughs> you know in revelation here do you watch with captions Stephen? You know, I, I generally will, yeah, actually do that. You know, my, I, my hearing hasn't recovered from a 1969 Who concert in the Electric Factory. Uh, so. <laughs> uh, I have to say, back to Oppenheimer, Killian Murphy was incredible. He's very good. Yeah, I would not be surprised if he gets an Oscar. Mr. Nominee. Oscar is knocking on yes. Robert Downey Jr.'s door. Oh, yeah, yes. Robert Downey Jr. was great, too. I think they'll His both character get nominated. was incredibly nuanced. I should mention the film does not pass the Bechdel test. Mm, yeah. <laughs> the, yes. Um, there, are, there are few women of depth in the movie. Um, yeah, the, not a lot of emotional depth, especially yeah. Jean. It just She just really got left in the dust there, uh, treated as a mistress character when she was actually, in real life, a much bigger role. Yes. I, I felt the movie was claustrophobic. I felt like uh, everything was packed in a little bit too tight. You got bombarded a lot over three hours with uh, very fast moving scenes, a lot of uh, fast moving camera stuff, uh, very loud noises, a loud score, and uh, a lot of visual jump cuts. So there was not a whole lot of breathing room. I've been comparing it to spending three hours in a dryer because you just kind of get tossed around (laughs) and you don't really know which way is up. A lot of times and it's very loud. Have you? Have you done I'm sorry. That? Have you done that before? <laughs> yeah, last last time I had psilocybin edibles, actually, I crawled inside of a dryer and, and turned it on. <laughs> um anyway, I it, like I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but uh it did not resonate with me. I I wanted a different kind of experience than what it was providing. Uh, I will say. I liked seeing it in IMAX. I would recommend that if you want to see it, you should try to find it in IMAX. Mm-hmm. Also, there's no computer-generated imagery in the movie. So all of the special effects, including the big set piece with the bomb, it's about an atom bomb. You know Christopher Nolan is doing a movie about the atom bomb. He's going to show you an atom bomb exploding. And they do. And it's very interesting how they do it without computer graphics. It, so. it really is. Yeah. The, the I guess it's pyrotechnics. They're incredible. Yeah. Yeah, really. And, um, Interesting choice in the movie, actually, to show that through the test, but not recreate Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The, the actual dropping of the bomb. Yes. In fact, there was no 
there was no recreation of that, no historical footage of that. And at some point in the film, when the Los Alamos physicists are watching a slideshow of the after effects of the dropping of the bomb, we don't even see that. We just see the reaction of their faces. Their their faces are illuminated by the slideshow, and they're you can see the sort of like the moral compass is shifting and the processing of what's going on. But we don't. Yes, we don't actually see what happened in Japan. Yeah. Interesting choices. Yes. Good recommendation from you both. And what's your recommendation? Pretzel buns. Shot chaser. Yes. Tell us about pretzel buns. So you may know um, that when you grill, like let's say you grill a burger or a hot dog or a sausage, you have to put it on a bun in order to get the the best enjoyment out of it. Now, as we all know, in a burger, the patty is pass-fail. Right. The thing that makes a burger truly excellent is the stuff you put around the patty, including the big, thick slice of tomato that's properly salted, um, the the pickles, the mustard and the bun. Pretzel buns are absolutely the best buns. There are people who swear by brioche and I love brioche, but uh Pretzel buns uh, don't compact as easily. They don't soak up a lot of the stuff. Is they're more substantial, is what I'm saying. Um, they're also uh, they're easier to to toast more thoroughly than brioche, which browns very quickly. So pretzel buns, the way to go. And uh, yes, I'm saying pretzel buns for hamburgers and for hot dogs and sausages. It is not summer unless you grill those things and put them on pretzel buns. But they Big taste question. like pretzels. Yeah, yeah. They have they have they have a texture and a flavor that is just like a big pretzel, like the kind you get at the baseball game. Well, I'm from Philadelphia, and I I, I have a certain view of pretzels. Uh, oh, oh, wait. Well, okay. How do Philadelphians? Philadelphians? How do yeah, Philadelphia is known as the big pretzel? Oh, so that's you know, big soft pretzels with mustard. So that means you like them. I like them, but not for hamburgers. Oh mm. come on! Have you tried? Have you tried a good pretzel bun hamburger? I've been, you know, like left without as an alternative in the parts, and and it, it was fine, but it tasted like a pretzel. I, I when I'm eating a burger, I don't want to eat a pretzel. Mike has left out an important detail here, which is that when he is having a pretzel hamburger, he's having a pretzel bun with like chopped up farro and mushrooms and black beans <laughs> slapped into a burger patty because no, I, I'm, already questionable choices here i'm just kidding i respect your veganism thank you but he doesn't eat meat so even when he's like and you know your sausage and hot dogs too should be on a pretzel bun they are should. you speaking from experience yes absolutely so you're having like impossible food burger or bur- burgers and yeah beyond beyond and sausages beyond and- solid the tofurkey ones are also pretty good although the beyond ones are better so I, I admire your fortitude and, you know, we're talking about the recommendation that Laura and I made and it deals with, you know, existence issues and, you know, art and you go right on undeterred with the pretzel buns that, yeah. you know, a win. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a man of many interests, Stephen. Beautiful. including cage matches all right well that is our show steven thank you so much for joining us this week it's been great to have you back on always a hoot guys steven really great to have you on the show and hope to do it again soon we will see you in vegas Yeah. (laughs) and thank you all for listening if you have feedback you can find all of us on twitter and blue sky and mastodon and threads just check the show notes Our producer is Boone Ashworth. We will be back next week. Until then, goodbye.
Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.